The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, we conclude our look at fall fashions and at accessible voting issues, plus a different but important type of advocacy on ACB Reports for November 2006. Last month, we learned about accessible voting efforts in California and Florida. This time, we hear from Mike Godino of New York and Pat Sheehan of Maryland about activity in their states. We begin with Mike Godino. Well, in contrast to Florida, can you say dysfunction? <laughs> New York State... Um, has been working, and I have been working uh, as an advocate in New York State for the American Council of the Blind of New York to ensure that people who are blind can vote. In 1992, um, when I became actively blind and uh, started to get involved with the ACB of Long Island, I, I asked the question, well, how do we vote? And I was told then, don't worry about that. We'll figure that out later. It came 2002, and uh, we have the Help America Vote Act, and... Uh, then was my chance, the opportunity for us to change the means of voting in New York State so that I could cast a private independent ballot. Unfortunately, New York State in 1890 was ahead of the curve when they introduced what was called and known as the full-face ballot. And in our election law, it states that uh, a voter must have the ability to view the ballot, all uh, candidates, all races, and all referendum within a single frame of the ballot, which equates to a full-face ballot. That means our machines are about four feet wide and three feet tall, and we get to see everything all at once. <laughs> uh, when you can't see, that becomes a major problem. With the uh, voting machines that are coming up, we told them they must be accessible, and it took two years for the New York State Legislature to introduce a law that they said was going to make voting accessible to people with disabilities. Unfortunately, they did not do away with this ballot, and at the time, none of the full-face machines were accessible. We are the only state in the nation that retains that full-face ballot requirement. Um, it cannot be made accessible by means of uh, scrolling menus because we cannot use those page-turning machines such as the Debolt and the Dell machine and all the other machines that are circulating around the country as accessible machines. Well, that dysfunctional New York State Legislature decided that in this law they were also going to require the uh, voter-verifiable permanent paper record, which is nothing but the paper audit trail, and we told them that they couldn't do that because paper trails are not accessible to people who are blind. And what the machine vendors convinced the legislature of, that the paper was accessible because the machine that nobody else trusted and they wanted to put the paper on would read the paper back to the blind voter so they can indeed have an accessible paper trail. And we told them that that will not work because we must have that same data stream that all other voters are using, which is the paper. So if you're going to make sure that we have to have this paper, you, we want to make sure that that paper is accessible to us as blind voters. Another thing that happened in New York State, because of their lackluster of implementation, was DOJ decided that they were going to make a spectacle of New York State by suing 
New York State to implement the Help America Vote Act because uh, we really were the last state in the union to, to come up with a law that was going to uh, implement that in New York State. So DOJ came in, and uh, we thought that this was going to um, fix everything for us, and because DOJ was suing New York State for lack of implementation, that we were going to soon have something. And last year, when the suit was announced back in November, we looked forward to this. I became a um, plaintiff in that lawsuit as a personal uh, plaintiff, hoping that um, my name on the lawsuit, along with a, a few other people with disabilities, would be able to make sure that our issues were met. Well, it went to federal court, and uh, that day in federal court, I met with the DOJ attorneys, and they told me that, you know, sometimes we have to give up something to get something else. And what they wanted to give up was access for me as a blind person. And I told them that that was unacceptable and <laughs> I needed to be able to vote privately and independently with my sighted peers and that uh, a paper trail is not accessible at this point in time and we needed to make sure that all aspects of voting were equally accessible because they are in the law. And um, they didn't want to hear that. They just wanted dates. They wanted dates and times that the Help America Vote Act was going to be implemented in New York State because the deadline after all the extensions came down to the first federal election in the state of New York that must be accessible. So the attorneys for the Department of Justice and the attorneys for the State Department of uh, Elections came up with this wonderful plan that they called Plan B which was going to implement the Help America Vote Act by that first federal election of 2006, and all people were going to be able to vote with or without their disabilities. But to do that, they had to contact their local board of elections to make arrangements for transportation to a site where an accessible ballot marker was going to be located and we were going to have to go there and use this accessible, what they called accessible, ballot marker to mark our ballots that we couldn't read back. Uh, and because it was um, a different site than our precinct, our ballots are going to be treated as uh, absentee ballots. And they guarantee us that our ballots will be counted within the week, but not on election day. And when we're done with this election of 2006 and Plan B works and we get it out of our way, we're going to throw away all of these machines and we're going to start from scratch again trying to find an accessible machine that we can put in all precincts and make voting accessible to people with disabilities in New York. I've been pounding the pavement, explaining to everybody I meet that this is an unacceptable result and we need to make sure that we protest this election and bring the media to our election precinct where we should demand we cast our ballot as privately and as independently as we can for this election and demand accessibility for people who are blind and ultimately disabled in all aspects, the uh, accessibility that we deserve as citizens. And uh, we need to be out there doing this because um, other states, and, and I commend Paul and Florida for, for the work that they've done in, in making it happen down there, but uh, New York State uh, doesn't seem to have anything in place that's going to work for 06, and at the rate they are moving, maybe by uh, 2010, we'll have private voting in New York State. Thank you.
I wanted to kind of close with the state that I'd heard in the past, and well, they had been getting it right. And then the question is, well, is that true or not? And have there been any changes? And, and that way it let us know, um, like Paul mentioned, you can't let your guard down. We, you have to be vigilant. And so for that, we have Pat Sheehan representing Maryland. Thanks. I want to give you what's going on in Maryland. We had started in 2002 uh, being fully accessible. Uh, we have the Debolt machines in Maryland, and we have uh, 20,000 machines, all Debolt, all one manufacturer throughout the state. We thought we were doing very well. As a matter of fact, let me give you some highlights of some of the positives that have happened in the state. When the Debolt machines first were installed in 2002, we had just about all the counties in Maryland using the Debolt machines. When we needed to go out and, and educate the individuals, particularly the disabled, on how to use the machines, the Board of Elections came to the ACB, as opposed to the NFB, who had a previous relationship with Debolt. I think the reason they did that was because they felt that we were very reasonable, that we would be um, fair and give impartial information regarding the voting machines. And I think this worked out very, very well. I'm very pleased with the relationship that we have with Diebold uh, in the state of Maryland. I think it has uh, really been a, a very positive step. And we were doing very, very well in 2002, 2003. The elections were getting more and more streamlined. We were not running into as many problems. And then all of a sudden we hit uh, Johns Hopkins, Ave Rubin, and all the security problems that have come up. We have had a lot of issues that have come up. We've had a lot of questions, and you've heard some of them this morning regarding the voter verifiable paper audit trail. And that also has arisen in the state of Maryland. What we have seen in Maryland is that we've got a very large contingent that wants to mandate that we use a voter verifiable paper audit trail within the state and that the Diebold machine should be dumped, $55 million worth of equipment, which I consider to be very accessible, very usable, user-friendly, in which we have invested a lot of time and material and information on. The contingent with the paper audit trail has said that because these machines are not accessible, because they don't uh, give us a paper trail, that we need to go to something different. They, in this past year, when they put forward a new RFP, basically tried to get us to switch to something like the Automark machine. Our legislature rejected that because we could not get the machine demonstrated within Maryland. And we do not have the capacity for dumping 20,000 machines in one election period to put forward some technology the automark machines that we can't even get demonstrated within the state. The real problem within Maryland has to do with the security of the machines. And we get computer scientists and we get advocates and everyone is giving both sides to every story. The area of machine security, of being able to audit what the vote has been, is a little bit different in the state of Maryland. Um, one of the things that I learned is that before the election, 
the uh, Board of Election runs what you would call a parallel election. They will run an election through these machines of which they know the totals of who they're going to vote for and what the numbers should look like. So they're going to test the Debolt machines before each election to make sure that each Debolt machine is working properly. Uh, this is um, done before the election, so they have a great deal of certainty with respect to these machines. They also are able to take the um, totals from inside the machine, compare them with the totals that they should have for the people that have come to the precincts. So that's another way that we can check these machines within the state to make sure that they're totaling properly. And lastly, and this has been talked about a little bit, there is a way to generate a paper from the machine because results are stored in the machines in two or three different locations. In 2004, there was a contention within one of the uh, counties within the state of Maryland, and they ran the Debolt machines against people who were using paper within that uh, county to vote. And what they found was that the Debolt machines were much more accurate than the paper, that there was a much higher rate of accuracy. You didn't have the overvoting, the undervoting. Uh, so they are very, very happy with those results. So we have a lot of mixed results coming from Maryland. Uh, the paper audit people will come in and they will cite examples of problems with the machines. But then they don't talk about the problems that we might have with uh, paper and how paper can be inaccurate and how you can undervote and overvote and what are they going to do about that. Lastly, when you talk about an audit, and I think this is what it comes down to. If you are going to insist on using paper as an audit trail with these machines, you are basically taking innovation and you're stifling it. Uh, the manufacturers would like to work on a different type of security, making sure that not just Debolt, but all the manufacturers use an audit system that they can feel is secure, they can feel is safe, they feel that, that it will generate confidence. And if we rely on just paper, uh, this type of innovation within not only the Debolt machines, but all the other machines is going to stop. We're mandating one type of verification, only paper. And to go back state by state and have to change that later on, is going to be difficult. So one of the things that Maryland is advocating for, of course, is security, is auditing, but they want to try to look at some new techniques for doing this and not be tied to just the paper. Thank you very much. Mike Godino and Pat Sheehan were recorded at the annual convention of the American Council of the Blind in July 2006. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Fall is definitely in the air, so we're just in time for those fall fashion tips for men brought to us by Lynn Cooper. Mike, I'm happy to be offering the men's fashion trends for fall and winter 2006 on into 2007. And um, these are taken from the pages of Men's Vogue, Gentlemen's Quarterly, Esquire, etc. And these are the top ten major trends influencing menswear this fall. And these are in random order. But to begin, Mike, the theme for menswear this fall and winter is a return to elegance. It is amazing how hard this has hit. And I am excited about it. It is less casual, almost no grunge, if you will, and much less novelty. It is 
elegance, and it is truly detail, detail, detail. Dressing up, the number one starred, bold-faced, italicized, number one. And it is being seen, like even on young people, going for tailored elegance. All we need to do is refer to and take a look at our hip-hop stars, P. Diddy, um, Jay-Z, all of these very successful hip-hop stars that um, the young folks are looking at are doing suits, British handmade, tailored three-piece suits are big, pocket squares, French cuffs, uh, separate vests, you know, very, very tailored looks, very elegant looks, almost sort of looking like a British banker in the 60s. It is very, very, very elegant. And so dressing up is big again. I think the pendulum tends to swing, and it has swung back to uh, being more concerned about what one wears. And if you are going to any occasion or any situation, going into any situation, usually there is a uh, desire to dress up, if you will. Uh, stripes are big. That's that's a really, really big look for men. Now, Mike, what I mean there is everything from pinstripes. Now, you have to imagine taking a pin and imagine that on a black piece of fabric, that pin head was run down with white uh, chalk. That is a pinstripe, all the way to a chalk stripe. And a chalk stripe is called that because imagine now on that same piece of black fabric, you have a piece of chalk, and that is going to make a thicker line. So you see these pinstripes in everything, Mike, from shirts, uh, suits primarily, pants, even uh, separates. Very, very, very big. Wider ties, and this goes along really with the dressing up return to elegance. More formal, shinier, a little bit wider. There's going to be very, very few changes in men's tie width over the years, and this is noticed this uh, season. With a small repeat pattern in bold colors, we're going to be seeing less stripes and more of these patterned ties, repeat uh, pattern ties, in bright colors. And often for the really fashion-forward men, we'll see a pinstripe or even a chalk-stripe suit. We will see a patterned shirt and then even a different pattern tie. We're going to be seeing another look, which is car coats. That means that it's not a trench coat, usually not belted. They're very sleek, and they're to the knee. As I said, no belts, uh, not a lot of buttons, not a lot of bells and whistles, usually zippers or a placket which hides the buttons, side slit pockets, very, very clean. Uh, darker colors, number five on our hit list, not a surprise in fall as we tend to go darker in our colors. Blacks certainly are back as if they've ever left, and dark gray is a really nice alternative, be it for a jacket, a sport coat, a sweater, a pair of pants. Jeans, this is also uh, mirroring women's wear, but not in any way to that uh, extent, that real, real narrow silhouette. But jeans are narrower, and we're going to see, this is real important for our listeners if they want to just simply get trendier with their blue jean purchase, if they're making a blue jean purchase, go to a darker blue jean in indigo, even into a black jean if they want, but a darker blue. You know, some years, Mike, it's very light and faded, and this season, you're going darker. And I think that really reflects the return to dressing up, because dark is more elegant and dark is more formal color. 
Number seven on our hit list is casual blazers. These are really, really big look. This is uh, truly a sport coat in very thick wools, tweeds, cardigans, even corduroys, and they're actually worn as outerwear. They are, once again, reflecting that dressing-up look, but yet they're not formal. You can really class up a pair of jeans or a pair of khakis, and as I said, it's worn as outerwear, actually, in lieu of a jacket, so you can layer. You can do a T-shirt, a shirt, a sweater vest, a sweater underneath. It's a great, great alternative to a coat. And then we have pea coats. We're seeing a lot of them, just a resurgence, really, of something that is a classic and often they're done in either black or navy. And in a good fabric, it's a really good investment. And if we don't have a lot of money to invest in a fancy, good, good wool one, I would go to the Army-Navy surplus store and get the official, a little bit scratchier wool, but the ones that are actually worn by sailors. And they are very, very, very warm. That I know. When I was going to college, those were a big look for women and men. Number nine is hairstyles. And what is being shown are hairstyles that are sort of 60-ish, not quite. The long hair is pretty much gone. I mean, you're always going to see different styles pop up, but primary trends are towards short on the sides and in back, longer hair on top, actually a long panel of hair from the middle uh, top of the scalp in front, and not a lot of facial hair, Mike, not a lot of facial hair. I even noted that we're not seeing a lot of that, what some men consider to be a sexy 5 o'clock shadow. It always tickles me when uh, you see a celebrity being interviewed and they want it to seem as though this is just kind of a casual, I got up, I didn't have time to shave, and you know they've given great thought to this over the past couple days. (laughs) And finally, slim pared down silhouettes. That's a real big theme, and if you have a big blousey jacket or a big blousey shirt or a real wide leg pair of pants, Think about tucking those because chances are that trend will come back at some point, but slim pared-down silhouettes in shirts, jackets, pants, not a lot of excessive detailing. And once again, we're seeing the return of flat fronts, so stay with the slim pared-down silhouettes. Flat front khakis and clean, crisp white shirts remain strong classics. Uh, going forward to fall and winter and on into spring. So for dressing up, And for pared-down silhouettes, those two can often work together, but for the most part, we're really seeing a return to elegance and formality and and far less casual and and grunge, so that's good. But even with the formalities, what I seem to be hearing is this may be a pretty easy year to be fashionable. It absolutely is. It's just really taking what you have. A couple things, you know, if we're going to be replacing pants, go to a darker color blue jean, replacing pants, go to, you know, khaki are always a good staple, uh, Mike. There's never a doubt about it. Go to flat front. This has been true for probably the past three or four years. Go to flat front pants. And it is. It's really easy. If you've got, you know, inherited some or someone gave you the gift or on a lark you bought some uh, French cuff shirts, great. Go to a secondhand store and and pick up some uh, vintage cufflinks and have some fun because that's very, very big, even under a sweater. So you're right. It is far easier season than some to be fashionable. That was Lynn Cooper of Lynn Cooper & Associates, Chicago. We usually think of advocacy in terms of negotiating or fighting for rights. But advocacy often means saying thank you. 
Day, Al Mohammed, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, says it's time for one consumer products company to receive some of that thank you advocacy. The big thing that I really wanted to address for this report is the Hamilton Beach Talking Microwave, 87106 and 87108. And what that is is actually it's two different colors, silver and black. It's actually just a regular microwave you can find at your regular retail stores like Walmart and Best Buy. The big thing that's exciting everybody is the fact that it talks and that it's pretty much accessible. I won't say it's fully accessible. I haven't had a chance to play with one. But the response is from most people is that they can access more than they ever have before. And what's remarkable is that this thing is under $100. I think I've heard $79 and $99. It's really rare that we find off-the-shelf products that are even partially accessible. And I know in the past ACB has talked with industry and, and retailers, and to be honest, they've been less than enthusiastic about access and universal design. It's not something that's a big deal to them. Advocacy-wise, we know that our members and the organization as a whole is really big about talking about problems and how we'll go after companies and send them letters and let them know when they have failed in their accessibility that they don't care. And what's nice and what's one of the great things to be able to say is that, hey, this is a company that stepped forward and created a machine that's more accessible than most, and now we have the opportunity to actually give positive feedback to a corporation. And we can do that in several ways. One way, of course, is to go out and buy the product. But even if you don't buy the product, there are things that you can do that are very important to us. Even if you don't buy the product, it doesn't hurt to give the company a call and say, I'm somebody who's visually impaired. This is a great product for somebody who doesn't see. It lets us have access to something we never had before. We appreciate it, and um, we hope that you do more products that talk and are accessible to people who are blind and visually impaired because, you know what, we're more than happy to be loyal customers, too. That's one of the big things to do is to let them know that. Positive feedback is very, very effective when you talk about commercial retailers and industry. They normally do not look at us as a community that is a customer. So how do we contact Hamilton Beach? The easiest would probably be to call their customer service phone number, which is 1-800-851-8900. I actually called it to double-check and spoke to a lovely woman named Susan. And, and you actually get a real person? I got a real person. And um, on their website, they actually have a web form that is accessible, believe it or not, and it's www.hamiltonbeach.com, and then you can actually click through that and under the ways to contact them, they have the form and you can type in whatever comments you feel like. It's just like any other kind of advocacy initiative, we really need to make our voice heard because if they don't hear from us, they'll look at the sales of the product and they go, well, it sells great, it sells good, it sells fair, it sells poor, and then that might be the end of it. So some good positive reinforcement here is as much a part of advocacy, we should always provide some positive reinforcement and feedback whenever we have the chance. Definitely. It's something that's sometimes really hard to remember because a lot of times we are really caught fighting for rights and access. It's one of the things they tell people when you're worried about a roof over your head and food on the table, it's kind of hard to think about issues like voting. When you look at that kind of a picture, you forget the fact that something as abstract as voting or as abstract as positive feedback, it can lead to help into the other day-to-day -day things. The first step is getting them to see this as something of value. Once that's there, it means that a product that may be only a good seller may be on the market longer because they know there's a vested interest in it. It encourages them to make other products accessible. And as a sideline to that, as a governmental affairs person, it gives me a lot more ammunition to go to other companies and say, you know what? Hamilton Beach made this talking microwave. 
It is accessible. It is usable. It is affordable. And we as a community are going to back it and buy it and use it. And you know what? If you make your things accessible, we might buy yours as well. We don't have any idea what caused them to build this product. Is that correct? At this point in time, I have not heard anything about where the idea came from, who did it, why. And, of course, Susan over at their customer service line didn't have much more information on that. But um, I intend to see what I can do to find out more. And along that line, if any of our listeners are in dialogue with any companies about accessibility issues, would you like to know about that? Yes, please. It makes it a lot easier to be able to better track what industry is doing, especially if they're moving in the right direction. None of them are perfect, and they all have their bottom lines that they worry about. If individuals negotiating, that's great. Maybe we can help offer a little bit of leverage from the national office, and it might also be we are working on it from another end. Collaborating and combining our uh, efforts just means greater accessibility for everyone. You can hear a podcast demonstrating the Hamilton Beach Talking Microwave Oven by going to blindcooltech.com. Blind Cool Tech is written together with no spaces or punctuation between the words. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world. This is ACB Radio.